of women who can reach orgasm, only 40% do so through intercourse alone, right? Mm -hmm. So everyone else needs a lot more foreplay or there's other routes that are a lot more effective. Mm -hmm. So I, I think when we skip a lot of that, that's a big problem. And so she starts to feel like sex isn't for her um, or they don't feel emotionally close during sex. So she feels used mm -hmm. um, or dehumanized. And so when we start to address those issues, often the frequency takes care of itself. You are listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast, a place to grow, learn, and be inspired as you discover God's purpose for your life. Here's your host, the pastor you've always wanted without the church, Dr. Kumar Dixit. Hey, welcome back to another episode. Guys, I got to tell you, you guys are like horny. That's all I have to say, because every time I have like a sex talk or a sex expert on the show, like my numbers go up. It goes from like one to like three, like three people start listening. It's crazy. So I, I thought, you know what? I got to like, I got to have another sex show just to get like four people on the show right now. So Sheila Gregoire is a relationship expert, um, has just written a great book called The Great Sex Rescue. Sheila, I read the entire book on vacation in Miami. So it was, wow. Um, yeah, I started it on the airplane. And as I was reading it, my 12 year old was actually sitting next to me and I was on my iPad. So I kept kind of like, like moving it over because I was a little <laughs> nervous of what she was going to read. But I really, really got to tell you something. You know, I've been a minister for 25 years. And one of the things that has just really bugged me as a Christian growing up is just how how stern and how obnoxious we are about sexuality as Christians. And, and oftentimes it's really been um, female blaming on everything. I really love your approach to the book about really being generous with sexuality, being open to it, and in particular, understanding women. <laughs> yeah, women's needs, right? <laughs> so just to tell me a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book. Well, I have been blogging since 2008. Um, I had been writing some small marriage books and everyone told me I needed a platform. So I started blogging without knowing what I was doing. And I was a typical mommy blogger. I wrote about marriage and housework and kids and all of that stuff. But like you just said, every time I wrote about sex, my traffic numbers went up. So yeah. <laughs> I'm like, hey, <laughs> maybe there's something here. Yeah. So I started writing more and more about sex and I kind of became the Christian sex person. Mm -hmm. um, in 2012, I wrote The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. I wrote 31 Days to Great Sex. I created orgasm courses and libido courses. And I was putting out all of this material and everyone still had the same problems. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, what is going on? And my team and I started to look into this around two years ago. And we realized that the issue is not that we need better teaching as much as it is that we need to recognize that the foundation of a lot of evangelical teaching about sex is rotten and we need to get rid of that foundation so that we can rebuild on something healthy. Yeah. And so that's what we're trying to do in this book is to address some of the really bad teachings which have made sex, which have made women not want sex and not enjoy sex and which have then cheated men of a lot of things too. <laughs> yeah. How can we get things back on track? And what's, what's so sad is that I, I think you and your team looked at the most popular Christian books on sex and relationships and kind of like throughout the book really 
pointed out some of the harmful messages that those books have. And, and I got to tell you, you know, I'm a pastoral counselor. I've done tons and tons of marriage counseling, but mostly premarital counseling. And I, I have this reputation, Sheila, that um, if you can get through Kumar, your marriage is going to be safe, like over the years, because I've broken up at least six mm-hmm. or seven couples like in pre-marriage counseling, right? So I really take it very serious and, and really want to make sure that they do the hard, hard work. And <laughs> what's so sad is that like, the books that I've given to couples are like almost all of the books that you pretty much trashed in Mm. your book especially love and respect like that is the one book I've given like at one point I bought a case of those books as a pastor and I was Mm. giving that out like it was skittles and then after I started rereading what you and your team were saying about that I was so mortified and so first of all just kind of the gossipy side of things like what did like these authors that you really like kind of went against um, have, has anyone come after you for like <laughs> addressing some of their, you know, dysfunction in their books? Not well, um, not publicly. Um, okay. There's been stuff going on behind the scenes. There's been lawsuit threats and things like that, which is silly. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. not slander to quote someone. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, and. Uh, there's been the people are not happy, which I find really sad to be honest. Because mm-hmm. what is our concern here? Yeah, shouldn't our focus be on making sure that the people that we are talking to get good advice, yeah. and that if we find out that we're harming them, then we should stop harming them. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jesus's focus is on the one sheep that is lost. He leaves the ninety-nine to go after the one. And our focus seems to be on, oh, you can never say anything bad about anyone in power. No, that's not the, that's not God's focus. God's mm-hmm. focus is the well-being of the sheep. And if you're a teacher, then you need to be prepared to be corrected. And I've corrected myself. Like even in the book, I, I, I say a number of times, yeah, I used to teach this. That was really dumb. I'm not teaching that anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, because we didn't, the things that people need to understand is we didn't say we're going to write a book to trash a bunch of other books. Sure. What we did was we did a survey of 20,000 women. It's the largest survey that's ever been done um, in the Christian sphere. And it was 130 questions. Like this was a serious survey. We've got mm-hmm. really invasive. <laughs> like it took like half an hour to fill out. It was pretty, it was pretty intense. And we asked about women's marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction and whether they reached orgasm and whether they were aroused and what their motivations were for having sex, like all kinds of stuff. And then at the end of that, we asked a bunch of questions about common evangelical beliefs about sex and marriage. Have you ever been taught this? And have you ever believed this? And with that information, we were able to say, okay, are there certain beliefs that result in worse sex? And lo and behold, there sure are. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then we just simply looked at the best-selling, we, we, I, we looked at 13 altogether, the best-selling um, Christian sex and marriage books to see which books teach this stuff. So we read them all and we analyzed them all and we pulled out, you know, which ones teach stuff that we now know harms. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really incredible. So let's dive in. Can we? Yeah. I got, I got a bunch of questions to ask you. I got, I got questions that are theoretical and then I got like actual sex questions I want to ask you about, <laughs> but um, you know, what, one of the things that I think that you really help point out is how infrequent women receive or- orgasm 
or a cheap orgasm. Mm -hmm. And I think one of, I mean, I think one of the, the hugest kind of aha moments for me, and I'm embarrassed to say this because now my listener is going to like now start saying that, you know, like I don't know anything about human anatomy, but um, is the idea that like the, the clitoris and the vagina are pretty far apart from each other. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, like they're like, you know, miles away from each other. And so the idea that, you know, I, I think the big takeaway for me when I read your book was the idea that, you know, a man that's like penetrating the vagina, he thinks he's like doing his job to pleasure a woman, but really, you know, that's, that's really like helping him like, you know, achieve climax, but it's not necessarily helping the woman achieve um, clitoral um, stimulation or, or climax. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So what we found was a 47 point orgasm gap. And what mm. we mean by that is that roughly like other studies have found around 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm during a sexual encounter. But the number for women is only about 48%. Mm -hmm. So that's a 47 point gap. And there's always going to be a bit of a gap because women are far more hormonal. We, it's just an anatomically, it's more difficult for us, et cetera, but it shouldn't be that big a gap. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I think it comes down to what our definition of sex is. Mm -hmm. Like if I were to say to you, did you have sex last night? Which I'm not going to ask you. So don't mm -hmm. worry. I'm not going to put you on the spot. But if I were to ask you that, chances are you're thinking that I'm asking something really specific, which yeah. is like, you know, did you put your penis into her vagina and did you move around until you climax? Like that's what we think sex is. Yeah. That though, I think is the definition of intercourse for sure. But if you think about that definition, what we're saying is she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head like mm -hmm. totally not engaged whatsoever. She could be in emotional turmoil or she could even be in physical pain and it would still count as having sex. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. her experience is missing from our definition of sex. Yeah. And yeah, so what I want to challenge people to think of is biblically sex is not one-sided intercourse that's what we read into it so when we read do not deprive each other and we think do not deprive each other of sex we're thinking do not deprive each other of an intercourse experience but biblically that's not what it's saying because mm -hmm. biblically sex is intimate you know, Adam knew his wife Eve we laugh at that verse but mm -hmm. it, it means this real intimate experience sex is pleasure Measurable, we know from the Song of Songs, and sex is completely and utterly mutual, we know mm -hmm. from 1 Corinthians 7. So we have this picture of mutual, intimate, pleasurable. That's what biblical sex is. It's not one-sided intercourse. Now, you, you asked me, you know, a rhetorical question of, you know, whether I had sex last night, and I can answer that very easily to you. Well, let me, let me tell you a joke, actually, and, and that is, uh, what, do you, what do you feed a woman to stop having sex? forever. Yeah, I've heard this one wedding yeah. cake. That's right, wedding cake, right? <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. so so what is it about marriage that just kills sex? Like I feel like and I've heard this from so many couples that they're hot and heavy and they're horny and they're making out and they're having like the most incredible sexual experience before they get married and then they get married and then it's like done. And I don't know, like part of me, like the man in me wants to be like extremely um, 
chauvinistic and I want to be like, oh, it's because the woman conquered, she got what she wanted. And now she's like, I'm done with you because mm-hmm. I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to act sexy. I'm going to act, you know, really great to woo you. But now that I have you, I'm done with you. And I think a lot of men feel that way that they, they got tricked into it where they were, it was a different woman sexually um, before they got married to where they are now. And you know, and I, and I, I know you address some of this as far as har- hormones and childbearing and, you know, some of those, you know, s- different levels of stress, but what is it that makes marriage seem like it's sexuality in marriage just seem like it's dead after marriage? Um, well, first of all, we need, we need to be careful that we don't stereotype because that's part of the issue that we had with a lot of these books. Um, in 58% of marriages, yes, he has the higher sex drive. Mm-hmm. But in 19%, she does. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in 23%, it's shared. So there, there's a theme going through a lot of our evangelical resources that she never wants sex and she needs to be talked into it. But let's remember that that doesn't apply to everybody. So there's, you know, in roughly okay. a fifth of marriages, she's the one who really wants it and he's the one saying no. So it's, it, it, it gets kind of tricky and it's, mm-hmm. it's a much more nuanced conversation than we often have, um, which is one of the things we're arguing for in the book. But I think what often happens too with couples beforehand is they're not aiming for intercourse, especially if they're Christian couples, right? All they're doing Mm -hmm. is making out. Mm -hmm. So they're kissing and their hands are moving and they're getting, it it becomes exciting. And then you get married and now you're allowed to do the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so what couples do is they skip all these progression steps and you, you don't do the foreplay. You don't, do anything really to warm her up or maybe you do like two minutes and that's supposed to be enough and it just doesn't work for her Mm -hmm. and a lot what we found is that frequency is not the problem frequency is a symptom of the problem Mm -hmm. (laughs) and if frequency suffers there's something else going on Mm. it's not like she loves sex but then she just gave up on sex it's that something else is happening so it could be his porn use. It could be sexual pain or sexual dysfunction. Um, the most likely cause is either she doesn't experience any physical pleasure from sex because they're not doing any foreplay. Like of women who can reach orgasm, only 40% do so through intercourse alone, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone else needs a lot more foreplay or there's other routes that are a lot more effective. Mm-hmm. So I, I think when we skip a lot of that, that's a big problem. And so she starts to feel like sex isn't for her um, or they don't feel emotionally close during sex. So she feels used mm-hmm. um, or dehumanized. And so when we start to address those issues, often the frequency takes care of itself. Like we found that in marriages where there's really high marital satisfaction, where she feels close, she feels heard during arguments, she feels like he considers my opinions in the same way that he considers his own. Um, In marriages where she frequently orgasms, the frequency is pretty high. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's like, let's look at what else is going on. And, And one of the things that we think is happening as well, which is one of the points of our book, is that we believe the way that we have talked about sex has actually diminished her ability to feel good during sex. Mm-hmm. So to get back to love and respect, the book that you handed out, like Skittles, for instance, yeah. you know, he says that that the purpose of sex is the husband's physical release. Yes, I love it. <laughs> and that if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Right, right. 
And he says, husbands need physical release the way wives need emotional release. I have no idea what emotional release is. That's just a very strange thing to say. <laughs> like I picture Sandra Bullock in the proposal dancing around the woods with Betty White. But anyway, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but like there's no in the whole book. There mm -hmm. is nothing about a woman being able to feel pleasure yeah. or about the fact that a man should make sex feel good for her. It's just simply you need to have sex. Women do it as to Jesus. Mm -hmm. He'll come under <laughs> satanic attack if he doesn't get physical release. And um, he most affairs are caused by men not getting enough sex at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that's yeah. the message about sex that's given to women. And then we wonder why women don't want it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, you 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 build a really strong case in the book for foreplay. And as I was reading, you know, the, as I was reading the book, I was like, Oh God, here we go again. No, no, don't let any, don't let my wife read this, you know, cause it, it is, it is so true. Like in a man's mind, like foreplay is nice. And I think you make the, the I mean, your point about like, basically when you're dating as a Christian couple, and if you haven't had sex, it is foreplay and it's like so incredible because it's it lasts so long and that's all you're doing and then the mm -hmm. minute that you you know um get married like as a man you just think now your job is to just stick it in rather than right. to actually like have that build up for foreplay right so for me as i was reading that i was like oh god no 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 but you're absolutely right i mean i, I think what you built was this idea of how can you as a man um, really think about pleasuring your wife rather than mm -hmm. just thinking about the climax for yourself. You're listening to the Concierge Minister podcast coming up. And you're just missing out on the fact that it is supposed to be a mutual experience. And like you said before, God did not stick the clitoris up the vagina. Okay. He put yeah. the clitoris on the outside. So she does not get maximum stimulation during intercourse. And that's the way God designed her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not just that God designed men so that you can reach orgasm fairly quickly, like, you know, two to five minutes if you wanted to, and you're done. Now, most guys can last longer than that, but if you didn't want to last, you do, you could often be done very quickly. Whereas women tend to need, you know, 20 to 25. You're listening to the Concierge Minister podcast with Dr. Kumar Dixit. If you found this podcast helpful to your spiritual journey, please make sure you give us a five-star rating and subscribe to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Also, remember to share this podcast with your friends and family. Now let's get back to the conversation with Kumar. The problem, I think, is that we, if we view sex as intercourse, which we do, then when she doesn't get pleasure from intercourse, it's her problem. <sighs> like she must be broken. Maybe she doesn't really like sex. Um, she feels selfish if she has to ask for something more. Uh, especially if she doesn't get that more beforehand, then afterwards he's really sleepy. <laughs> so she feels yeah. like I can't ask him to do anything now. So if sex is supposed to be about giving to someone else, then she feels like, well, I guess I'm done then. Mm -hmm. Like I, that's all it really should be. And I'm, and I don't want to be selfish and you're just missing out on the fact that it is supposed to be a mutual experience. And like you said before, God did not stick the clitoris up the vagina. Okay. He put yeah. the clitoris on the outside. So she does not get maximum stimulation during intercourse. And that's the way God designed her. And not just that, God designed men so that you can reach orgasm fairly quickly, like, you know, two to five minutes if you wanted to and you're done. Now, most guys can last longer than that. But 
if you didn't want to last, you do, you could often be done very quickly. Whereas women tend to need, you know, 20 to 25. And it's easy to think, well, women take a long time. But the only reason we think women take a long time is because men take such a short amount of time. If men took 45 minutes, we'd think women were rockets, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a really good so, point. Yeah. So it's like, we need to remember that this is the way God made our bodies mm -hmm. and she's not broken if she doesn't enjoy the same things that bring him pleasure. And the goal should be mutual pleasure, however you need to get there. So let me ask you a couple of questions about Christian culture in general. I remember when I was like a young minister, I'm, did you see how I just prefaced that? So I blamed it on me being young, right? So when I was a, a young minister, I was on staff of a large church and um, one of the discussions was the the attire of one of the praise and worship singers. And I mm -hmm. can tell you that it was not a man that we were talking about, right? So right. there was quite a bit of cleavage showing, the, the, there was a lot of knee showing, <laughs> you know, uh, the skirt mm -hmm. was kind of high. And, and one of the um, members in our church had a really hard time with that. And he had written and said, um, this is, I find this very, very distracting. That's the words that he used. And then his wife got involved and said, you know, he has a sex addiction and it's something that we've been struggling with for years. Um, you should really cover up these ladies on the stage. And um, this is probably 17, 18 years ago, but the the issue was addressed um, with this with this um, singer and, and they ended up, you know, um, changing what, what needed to be done. I, ha I have regretted that staff meeting so, so, so many times because of the shame that we put on women. Um, like the, the impetus wasn't that woman, you know, like, so what, like her tits are showing, that's not her problem, that's his problem, that he's can't control himself and that he, you know, has all these urges. And so I feel like over the years, we have really like sex shamed women um, especially within mm -hmm. Christian culture. And I want to know um, if you think that has really um, kind of contributed to sexuality within the bed of, of couples as well. Yeah. And that's one of the big things we found. So we found four big evangelical teachings, which were heavily correlated with bad sex for women. And one of the ones that was really problematic was the idea that all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. Mm -hmm. And this idea is everywhere. There's a whole book series on it. Um, it's in many of our bestsellers. And the reaction to this idea that all men are struggling with lust is that therefore it's put on women to mm -hmm. control men's urges. So women have to change the way we dress. Women have to change the way we act. Women need to be the gatekeepers in, in dating relationships to make sure you don't go too far because he can't control himself. So his sexuality is something which is just a given. Um, like in Every Man's Battle, he actually says that the reason sexually is sin and the reason they get to this, this part is naturally it's simply by being male. Mm -hmm. Um, and in another book in the same series, it says men just don't naturally have that Christian view of sex. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that God made men to objectify women. Mm -hmm. And so the best that we can hope for is that he objectifies only one woman for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And wow. God did not make men to objectify women. It is no. not God's fault. And I, I, what one thing we call in the book for is just a whole new conversation around lust, because this is the one message, and I hope people hear this in our book, that I think has really shamed men mm 
and I think has made men feel trapped. Mm. And we've been talking about it wrong because sexual attraction is not lust. Like Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman with lust. So you have a deliberate action, the looking, Mm -hmm. and you have a deliberate mindset, the lust. So whoever sees a woman is beautiful. That's not lust. Whoever notices a woman has a nice chest. That's not lust. Um, Whoever finds a woman attractive, that is not lust. It's when you deliberately look at someone and use them for your own sexual gratification. But I think what's happened is we have talked so much about how men are visual, God made them visual, um, and you're going to be tempted by all of this. And we do this, especially in youth groups, and guys conflate sexual attraction and lust. And so they think the only way to not lust is to not see women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this whole bouncing your eyes thing, but when you bounce your eyes, what you're still doing is you're still treating her like a sexual being like you're still dehumanizing her and objectifying her you're saying all you are is a sexual being jesus did not bounce his eyes Mm. jesus Mm. did not refuse to look at women what jesus did was choose to truly see women yeah i i think that's such a great point i as you're saying that i'm thinking about you know the woman at the well and you know i mean just just the idea he has a conversation and he builds a relationship because it's not about sexuality or about conquest in, in any way. And I remember mm-hmm. in the, in your book, when you talk about this issue, you talk, you give several examples of like ministers who just won't even look at women in the eye. And basically you're kind of like yeah. not giving them the respect of even being in the room because they are afraid of how um, they're going to sin. But what you're also doing is you're not recognizing their humanness in your presence. Yeah. And and that has profound repercussions for women later once they get married. This was the one message. This is kind of interesting how this one worked for for any of you who are like survey and science geeks. Um, Most of the most of the evangelical teachings that hurt women hurt them when women believed them. Mm. This was the one message that hurt even if you never believed it, but you were simply taught it. Wow. So growing up in a culture which teaches women that all men are going to struggle with lust, that it's every man's battle. Then when those same women get married, they're far less likely to trust their husbands Mm -hmm. and they're far less likely to have sex because they want to. They're far more likely to have sex only because they feel they have to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if they believe it, those, those effects are intensified, but it's just really interesting that those effects stay even if they were taught it, but never believed it. And I think that we've lost some of that because we've over-sexualized relationship. But I think that we need to be aware of the issue, which is that we are over-sexualizing relationships. And when we do that, we lower the trust that people have Mm -hmm. and we cause women especially to feel dehumanized and objectified. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can follow into marriage. I think that's what people forget is that it is possible to objectify your wife It Mm -hmm. is possible to treat her as less than human. Um, And many of the attitudes that we have towards men's insatiable lust that needs to be controlled by women are followed up in marriage. So for instance, um, every man's battle talks about when it talks about sexual addictions and how to get over them, it tells women when he quits lust, be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like, yeah, that's not sexy. Telling a woman, hey, your methadone for his sex addiction is I can't think of anything that's more dehumanizing than that. 
Um, and yet this is what it, it says several times is that she's just methadone. And what does the methadone analogy really say? If you think about it, like methadone is a drug that addicts use um, to stop them from using the hard stuff. So mm -hmm. it's like a substitute that can get rid of the craving, but it isn't as strong. Mm -hmm. So if you say that she's methadone, what you're really saying is what he really wants is that other woman, mm -hmm. but he's going to settle for you and he's going to let you satiate him so that he doesn't try to go after that other woman so that he doesn't try to go after porn so that he doesn't lust. So mm -hmm. you're not even what he really wants. You're just the substitute, the safe substitute that's just going to satiate him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. And that's a problem because sex is supposed to be a deep knowing. Mm -hmm. It is supposed mm -hmm. to be an intimate experience. Yeah. And we've stripped it of all that. It's so interesting how so many of the books don't even talk about intimacy, you know, don't even mm -hmm. talk about the potential that, and, that sex has for this deep longing and this connection. I mean, think about how much sexual imagery there is in the Bible when God talks about his relationship with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he and, never and, says we're methadone. <laughs> no, no, and I mean you're absolutely right. I mean, he he uses that idea of the deep knowing and wanting to have that deep knowing with humanity. It, it reminds me of the musical artist Sting, where he writes in his autobiography that he and his wife had this like 18-hour, 24-hour sexual like experience that went on and on and on and on and on. And and I remember a couple of years later, Oprah interviewed him and she was like, I need to know about this, you know. <laughs> you know, I must know about this, you know, Were there marathon. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Is there is like what is going on? And and he he had such a great example and illustration of the idea. He's like, Oprah, was it like I was we're penetrating for 24 hours straight? No, he was like, there was hugging and touching and caressing and kissing. And there was, you know, sleeping and there was stretching. And, you know, there, there was, you know, he's, you know, he just made it, made the idea so holistic as far mm -hmm. as this is what sex is. It's yeah. not just the act of intercourse. It's, it's the act of knowing one another. Yeah. And that's so different from the way a lot of our evangelical books, um, talk about it like every man's battle says to women um and we were looking at the older edition the newer one came out after our book of, was written but um it says to women you know if he's really struggling with lust you may feel badly about that but do the right thing give him release yes and power of a praying wife says the same thing that a man will get his eyes will get cloudy if he doesn't get release um love and respect talks about sex as a husband's physical release and so you can if you if you're a guy listening to this, put yourself in the place of a woman reading this stuff. Because remember, women read 74% of books of, of self-help marriage books. Okay. Yeah, so it yeah. tends to be women reading this stuff. Yeah. And what you're hearing is sex isn't even intercourse. Intercourse at least has two is supposed to involve two people, even if it isn't enough, but at right. least it's supposed to involve two people. But talking about sex is merely his release is mm -hmm. just it's it's like saying you don't matter at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You are so she, a receptacle. He's using you as a masturbatory tool. Right. And this is the way it's portrayed. So let's talk about that for a minute, because I I I tend to agree with you when you're writing. You know, when I was reading that, and then I also was kind of like, "Shut up, Sheila! Don't tell like <laughs> our our secrets. Like, what's wrong with you?" <laughs> so, so you know, like I think a lot of couples are like uh, in a lot of relationships women can be happy to have it once a week 
or every other week. And man would be happy, not necessarily to have sex, but to have release, mm -hmm. um, you know, a couple times a week. And so the idea, and, and just as you said, I mean, in, in all of these books, you know, the, the impetus is on making sure the woman gives the man release, right? Mm -hmm. So in the same way, you know, if a woman doesn't want to have, you know, sex or sexual encounter, is it kind of pimping her out to give her husband a hand job or a blow job or, you know, to do, to, you know, do other things to release him? Or is it now you're kind of turning it into, you know, a service? Well, that's exactly what, what the issue is. The issue is never the act. The issue is the motivation. Okay. So, um, one of the, the the very, very most harmful teaching that we measured, the one that was the most toxic, is the idea that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. Mm -hmm. And to give you an idea of how toxic that is, one of the things that we were looking at specifically in this survey was women's rate of vaginismus. And a lot of people won't even know what that word means. So let mm -hmm. me explain. Vaginismus is a sexual pain disorder where the muscles of the vaginal wall contract, which makes penetration really difficult, if not impossible. Very, very painful. And um, we found that 22% of women have experienced this, 7% to the point that penetration is impossible. We have known for, it's 50 years ago, it was in the gynecological literature, that Christians and conservative religious women suffer from this condition at twice the rate of the general population. So this is mm -hmm. our problem. And this mm -hmm. has been widely known. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to figure out what is it about our messages that is creating this problem. And this obligation sex message is the one that we found was most um, implicated in it. Mm -hmm. If a woman has sex merely because she feels she has to, she's 1.8 times more likely to experience vaginismus. The rate of increase of the chance of her having vaginismus is statistically almost identical as if she had been an abuse victim. Mm. So the obligation sex message acts on her in the same way as abuse does. Mm. Because what abuse does is it says, you don't matter. I have the right to use you however I want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that message says the same thing. Yeah. Now, let me tell you a story about Kay. Okay. okay, so she's her story's in the book. And Kay and her husband had a great sex life um, until after their second child was born. And then things started to go downhill. And after their third child, it got even worse. She had a bad tear. She had postpartum depression. And she just didn't bounce back. And she it was like she lost all feeling below the neck. Like she just didn't feel anything anymore. But she still had sex every 72 hours. She initiated because she knew she was supposed to. Mm-hmm. And this this went on for about two years until she finally was like, I can't do this anymore. I feel so used. And she had a long talk with her husband. And her husband said, I never want you to feel used. I never want you to do anything you don't want to do. If we are in the middle of intercourse and you want to stop, you tell me and we will stop. Mm. I never want you to initiate in a way that you don't want to. Like mm -hmm. this needs to be for both of us. And then over the next few months, he proved that to her. So if she ever said, no, I'm not good, or this isn't feeling good, he stopped. And he's like, let's go to sleep then. And because of that, it was like her sexuality awakened again when she realized, I can do this for me. It's not just for my husband. And her orgasms came back. Everything came back. And now they've settled in to sort of a, a rough schedule. And you know what that schedule is? Hmm. It's every 72 hours. 
<laughs> so it's the same frequency. Yeah. But yeah. it's totally different because now it's happening because she wants to and because she feels the freedom to have her sexuality awakened. So is it I, I know you talk about that, Genesis. And, and I remember highlighting it in the book because I think you said that that word or that reference is not mentioned in any of the other Christian books, right? Uh, she music does. Um, she music, okay. She music actually, it handled a lot of things really badly, but that one it did handle quite well. And I believe the gift of sex did as well. Okay. Yeah. So, so this is something that's very prevalent within, you know, ma marriages. So mm -hmm. I, I know part of it or a lot of it is, is mental and emotional, but can, what, what should a listener do if they're experiencing painful sex? What, what would you say to them? pelvic floor physiotherapy please go get some pelvic floor physiotherapy there's so there's great treatments for it now yeah. um and actually we're working with a number of pelvic floor physiotherapy university departments with our data set um to get more published and and to work on a screening tool for pelvic floor physiotherapists so that they can do more than just the exercises but that they can start to address some of these issues that we've identified in these toxic beliefs too so i think it's a two-pronged approach yeah get the physiotherapy but also read the book because um, we talked to so many women who had had sexual pain disorders and they found that once they were able to let go of a lot of these negative messages, the pain, the treatment for the pain worked a lot better and they were able to, to get to the other side a lot faster. So it's interesting you say that. I have a friend who's a physical therapist who works exclusively with women and this is probably the bulk of her work. That's really interesting. But imagine imagine that you're one of the 22% of women who has sexual pain, and then you read a book like Love and Respect, which says he'll come under satanic attack if you don't give him release, and you're not allowed to say no to sex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what so many of them say. Like, there is no excuse to say no. Unless you're going through a mutual time of prayer and fasting, you cannot say no. Yeah, and, and the fact that this is an issue a double the amount of people amongst Christian community demonstrates just the repression that we experience, right? Yeah. You're listening to the Concierge Minister podcast. Coming up. I, I got some sex questions to ask you. Are you ready for them? Oh. Sex toys. I, I was really hoping you would like address this in your book and, and, and I don't think there was a mention. I mean, even outside of Christian circles, it's still kind of taboo. Like no one really says, hey, we got like a swing in the, you know, the basement yeah, yeah, or, yeah. you know, things like that. But what, what are your thoughts about that, about Christian couples introducing sex toys and, and just kink in general? I, I got some sex questions to ask you. Are you ready for them? Okay. Okay. So masturbation, um, you know, there's, there's been this whole thing, at least me growing up, you know, just, you cannot masturbate whatsoever. It's, it's horrible. It's, it's, it's a sin under God. And my, my, my eyes opened up to this in my, in my early thirties, when I was talking to a, a, a friend, she's a gynecologist. And I was talking, I don't even know how it came up, but it was brought up and she kind of was like, no, that's so important, Kumar. Like, how are you supposed to get to know your body? How are, how are women supposed to know where their parts are, what's pleasurable to them and, and what's important to them? And it kind of just had this light bulb moment for me. Where I was like, oh, this went from dirty to education and knowing yourself. So what are your thoughts about that? I think we we need a much more nuanced conversation with teenagers. I would it's two different conversations once you're married or, or unmarried. First of all, we need to understand that the vast majority of people do it. And um 
it's so funny because in a lot of our Christian resources, uh, it talks about how boys masturbate and that's why they know how sex works, but girls don't. And so they enter marriage. not knowing. Okay. You know what the stats are? I think it's like 80% of guys do and about 60% of girls do or 55% of girls do. Like, it's not like girls don't. And so this idea, I wish we could get away from all these gender stereotypes, like boys are like this and girls are like this. We're yeah. actually a lot more alike than people think. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, we, we do need to talk to our teens about that. And that's an important conversation. I think within marriage, if she's having a hard time, <laughs> you know, feeling good, often that can help, but it, it also can hurt. Like it depends. And I think this is where it's so important just to give her agency, mm-hmm. um, telling her, well, if you don't know what feels good, you need to touch yourself that can actually cause even more trouble with some women who have a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for them, it would be much easier if the husband slowed down and tried to figure it out himself and she could give him some direction or if she held his hand and used his hand or something like that, you know? Um, So it can really be very helpful for a lot of women, but I don't think we should ever talk about it like this is what she needs to do um, because it can also add a lot it, it can reinforce some shame if that's what she's feeling too. Um, I think the problem with masturbation in general though, is really about, are you stealing sexual energy from your spouse? And is this being done in secret? Like there is nothing sinful about touching one's genitals. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not like lightning is going to strike <laughs> if your hand goes in the wrong place. And often we think that there is, that's not it. And if this is part of your sexual play with your spouse, that's cool. No problem. You know, <laughs> If you're away from each other for a couple of weeks and you're on the phone and you're having fun, I don't think there's any problem with that at all. On the other hand, if he's masturbating in the shower every morning because he prefers that than having to worry about how to make her feel good, that's a huge problem. Yeah. And I think that was a huge piece in the book that you talk about is the idea that often even like, it, you know, over masturbation could also lead to just um, impotence, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea that, you know, once it's now time to actually perform in the bed, he can't because he's so used to doing it um, mm-hmm. on his own rather than bringing it into the bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the question is, are you doing this to enhance your intimacy or are you doing this in order to have a secret life and avoid intimacy? Okay. So next question, pornography. Um, you know, it's it's the biggest um business out there and especially within Christian circles, that's like, it's, it's like a broken record for men. It's like the only mm-hmm. thing like, you know, men seem to have only struggle with this as pornography is at least that's how Christians make it sound like. I also have, I've, have, have couples who've told me that they watch porn together and it actually um, gives them ideas. It gives them pleasure both. Um, so I don't, I don't know what, where you stand on that. Porn is always wrong because it is the largest contributor to sex trafficking in the world and it is a justice issue. Okay. Even forget the sex aspect of it, forget the couple aspect of it. What you're you're when you're watching porn, you're essentially masturbating to somebody getting raped. Mm-hmm. And even if you think it's consensual porn, when you drive the demand for porn. And when you drive the demand for certain to watch certain things, the things that you are trying to watch are the things that children are going to be asked to do. Mm. Mm. Um, it, there is no way to create an ethical porn industry. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, at all of the hubbub about Pornhub <laughs> that happened a few months ago with all of the rape videos and child um, sex abuse videos that were on there, there's just no way to redeem it. And it is evil. 
And I think that if we talked about it that way, especially to our teens, Generation Z understands justice issues. Mm -hmm. I think that's a much more empowering message to help them stay away from porn than just it's a sin and God doesn't like it. Um, I think it's very important that we talk about the justice aspect of it and that these are real people getting abused. Um, You know, if someone is a drug addict and if they were sexually abused at home and they ran and from the streets and they're now in porn, is that truly consensual? Like, there's a whole lot of issues there. Yeah. Um, as for in marriage, I, th- I think the problem comes in that we think that marriage is going to cure porn addictions. And a lot of people don't disclose that they have a porn addiction because they figure, well, once I get married, that I'm not going to need to anymore. And the problem is porn and sex are diametrically opposed. They're two totally different things. Porn says, I get serviced, I get gratification right away, and I don't have to worry about anybody else. So basically, I get to use someone. And sex is about giving. And Mm -hmm. so people find that if they use porn, sex is not a substitute. Yeah, I think that's such a great, such a great point with the idea that um, tangible sex, human to human is about service to one Mm -hmm. another. Whereas um, porn and, and most porn, like it starts with, I mean, it, there, there's no foreplay in porn, right? I mean, it starts with like, bam, he's, you know, pounding her and it ends with him finishing off and not having her do anything in between, right? So it's all yeah. kind of a, a, a one act. Um, and, you know, for me, I think that's the danger, it, in particular for young men, is that that's what they're learning is mm-hmm. what's expected in sexuality rather than learning how to fulfill a woman's needs. Yeah. Now, I do think we need a much more nuanced conversation about this. And um, we actually followed up with the men's survey after this book was published. We have a men's book coming out next year where we talk a lot more about pornography and some of the myths and the facts about it in the Christian community, because I think I think that we're shaming a lot of guys um, for stuff that... (laughs) They fell into without meaning to. Like if you're 12 years old and somebody shows you porn, mm-hmm. that's not consensual. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if a 12-year-old girl was sexually abused, we understand that's abuse and we understand that's non-consensual. Yeah. Um, if a 12-year-old sees porn because a bunch of their friends showed their phones to them and then that gives a biological reaction in them it gives a and often some trauma responses as well and then you start turning to porn but the initial thing was not consensual (laughs) even if he was curious at 12 you're not able to consent in the same way that you're not able to consent to sexual activity and so a lot of people get trapped in porn before their brains are even able to consent about this and so i think that we need to understand that Mm -hmm. and we need to stop talking about this as like a sin issue (laughs) which just adds shame and start talking about this as like empowering people to understand what porn does to them, to understand what shame cycles do to them, to understand how we can use addictions to run from um, healthy coping mechanisms. So, you know, when boys feel bored when they're teenagers, when they feel rejected, they turn to porn. And then you Mm. never learn how to handle being bored or being rejected. (laughs) Right, right. right, So we have to go back and rebuild what emotional healthy behavior looks like. Um, So I think that's an important conversation that instead of just shaming, just say, this is what happens and here's how we can rebuild, but also recognize, you know what? Most guys who have used porn do stop. Mm -hmm. And when they stop, 
their marriages get pretty good. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's not be defeatist about this and let's not, you know, say that all hope is lost because that's not true. That's not the gospel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and we need to put Jesus back in the center and say that there there is hope and you really can get over this if you decide to and if you truly confess and if you truly repent and if you're able to look at your wounds and your hurts and deal with your unhealthy coping mechanisms. So I, I know porn is an issue for both men and women, but, you know, primarily, you know, it's obviously, you know, one-sided for, for men. And one of the things that I've had over the years is how many women have come and seen me as a pastor saying, my husband's addicted to porn. Um, I, I, I watched him watching it in the basement. I see it on his browser, but yet she has never addressed the issue with him. Mm-hmm. So what what do you say to a spouse who, is so aware of this addiction, but they haven't had the words or the courage to really address it with their spouse. It is not going to get better unless you do something about it. It's mm-hmm. not. And there, when you do confront him, I would say, first of all, get some help. <laughs> you know, get some people around you that can, that can perhaps be on your side as you talk to him about this, if you need that. Um, Cause not everyone handles that confrontation well. Um, but remember that there's a huge difference between somebody apologizing and saying they're sorry because they got caught mm-hmm. and someone saying they're sorry because of what they did. And yeah. what I see a lot is people will say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. But then they refuse to go to a group. They refuse to see a counselor. They refuse to tell anybody. And that's not real repentance because real repentance is always accompanied by action. Mm-hmm. And you don't try to preserve um, reputation when you're truly repentant. You are able to be humble and confess. Uh, and so if they're not willing to get help, then it's not real repentance. And that's when you need some serious boundaries and say, I am no longer willing to uh, put up with this. Mm-hmm. That's good. Do we have time for one more question? I know sure. we're, we're running we're running yeah. low on time, but sex toys. I, I was really hoping you would like address this in your book, and 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 I don't think there was a mention. I think there was mention once uh, mm-hmm. of something about sex toys in, in your book, and I, I circled it and I was like, let's see if she says more about this because I think this is a piece that. Um, I mean, even outside of Christian circles, it's still kind of taboo. Like no one really says like, hey, we got like a swing in the you know, basement yeah, yeah, or, yeah. you know, things like that. But but I, I do find that couples can find that very enjoyable and um, new to the relationship. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that, about Christian couples introducing sex toys and, and just kink in general um, as part of their, their, their sex life? Um, I, okay. (laughs) So there, Paul says several times, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And I don't think those things are sinful, but I think you need to ask if they're beneficial. And for some people, it's probably not a problem for other people. It is. And so it's one of those things you can't say a definite yes or a definite no. Yeah. I do find vibrators an issue. (laughs) Um, after talking to a lot of women, um, and the issue there is that a lot of women who can't reach orgasm will get a vibrator so they can reach orgasm. Mm-hmm. And to a certain extent, if you've been years without orgasming and you've tried everything, at least you know what one feels like and that can be beneficial. Um, the problem is that often vibrators can be a shortcut to the work that really needs to be done. Mm. And he just needs to figure out how you work. You need to figure out how you work. No guy can vibrate like that. 
you know <laughs> no woman can use her no woman's hands vibrate like that either like yeah. you can't mimic a vibrator and mm. while you can force your body to respond to a vibrator what you really want to be able to do i think what most women want to be able to do is to respond in relationship and mm -hmm. that means being vulnerable it means being able to trust your husband to tell him little bit to the left or you know or to, mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. you know yeah. to say what feels good and what doesn't and that's really difficult to do for a lot of women especially if the relationship isn't really good mm -hmm. um and so it's not again i'm not talking about sinful i'm just saying i think what happens is a lot of people start to rely on them but their initial problem is still there yeah and uh, when you become too reliant on one, it can it can sometimes even backfire. So um, for some people, you know what, if you've had a hysterectomy, if you've gone through menopause and things just aren't working anymore, and this is the only way, more power to you. But just <laughs> just be careful that you're not taking a shortcut. That's all. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, you're, you're also, you just mentioned the whole key, I think, to your book is is that open communication and dialogue that needs to happen in sexuality. I remember having a very young couple in my office and they're pretty much like just doing like missionary style, you know, right. And, right. and that's all they were doing. And, and he wanted to like change things up a little bit, but just was so nervous and scared to talk about what to do, what to try right. her, having the permission to like say hey this feels good and let's yeah. try this and do this and so the idea to actually communicate better as a couple is only going to actually grow your sexual experience yeah and in the great sex rescue we've got a bunch of exercises at the end of each chapter that you can explore together and find ways to spice things up or talk about things and um yeah try new things so it's kind of fun too mm -hmm. it's awesome Sheila, I think you're going to have to be like my personal sex therapist. Like, just <laughs> you, know, you have an open invitation to the show anytime. This has really been great. Thank you for normalizing sexuality, especially in Christianity, and for not um, making it feel like an icky, shameful thing. You know, the, my my one thing that I, my one regret or frustration after I read your book was, I was kind of mad at God, and mm -hmm. I was like, bro. Like you created this amazing thing called sex. And then you never really gave us like a great handbook. Like there's more stories of sexual dysfunction and rape and um, abuse, you know, in the Bible than like, yeah, you can say there's some good relationships, you know, like, oh yes, Abraham and Sarah, but did we forget about what he did to Sarah when they were in Egypt? You know, so so there's no real, really great model of of coupling and relationships and sexuality. And um, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that you were able to kind of bring together portions from the Bible, but it also made me sad that um, we don't have that in the Bible. Yeah, and I think the thing about the Bible is that it's telling the story of real people and the real mess. And in the mm. midst of all that mess, you can get these glimpses of what it can be and of yes. what God intended, but often it's only glimpses. Mm. And then it's and then in Jesus, we see the heart of everything. Yeah. And then it's just like, okay, so how how do we make that that servanthood plus that passion for life, you know, real in our marriages? And I, I hope I can point people in the right direction that, you know, this was supposed to be something that was life-giving. Mm. This was supposed to be something which is really passionate. Mm. And if it's not that in your marriage, then let's figure out why. 
It should never be something which is soul crushing. Not when yeah. it was meant to be this beautiful. So let's figure out why. Just make this the best research project you'll ever do as a couple. Yes. Yes. And get to the other side because it's too good a thing to miss out on. That's awesome. Where can people learn more about you, Sheila, and find out? I know you have a blog. I know you're everywhere, but where can yes, find Yes, I am. I blog every day at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. And then you can listen to my Bear Marriage podcast. But if you go to tolovehonorandvacuum.com, there's links to the podcast. There's links to all my books. There's links to my orgasm course and all sorts of things like that. But And then, of course, you can find The Great Sex Rescue anywhere books are sold. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. This has really, really been helpful. Um, the book is fantastic. And I really appreciate you joining me today. Well, thank you. It's been great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. If you want to learn more about growing in your faith or looking for an online faith community for support while you're on your journey, please visit conciergeminister.com or send us an email at conciergeminister at gmail.com. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating. If you find this podcast helpful, please tell your friends about us. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, go and live your best life.